The devil made them do it. Ten crimes blamed on demonic possession. It is part of accepted colloquial speech to blame personal tragedy or personal weakness on demons. When someone commits suicide, people often speak about the dead's battle with their own demons. When someone commits a foul, bloody deed, another set of demons are invoked, the kind that warp minds and force otherwise good and decent souls to carry out murder. Both the Christian and secular worldviews see demons as malefic parasites that destroy human goodness. They, of course, debate whether or not demons are real or just mental illness. Some criminals believe in demons, and some even believe in demons so much that they have blamed their behavior on demonic possession. The case of David Berkowitz, also known as the Son of Sam, is the most well-known example of a serial killer blaming a demon for their actions. In that case, Berkowitz blamed the demon that had possessed Sam, his neighbor's dog. The following ten cases are nowhere near as famous as the Son of Sam, but they all feature murderers and the demons that supposedly drove them to kill. For starters, the murder of Lauren Landavatsko. 13-year-old Lauren was walking with her friend, 13-year-old Michaela Smith, on September 2, 2006. The pair were walking home after school along a typically suburban footpath. At some point, the two girls were approached by a young man in a car. That man was 20-year-old Cody Lott. Lott would later give two explanations for why he did what he did that day. He was jealous because Landavasco seemed to have a boyfriend and the devil wanted him to do it. Regardless of which one is being the truth, Lott opened fire on both girls with a 22 rifle. Smith, who managed to survive the ambush, told police that Lott made eye contact with her first before pulling the trigger. Eyewitnesses also claimed that Lott shot Lodzinsatsko first before shooting her again after wounding Smith. At his 2018 trial, Lott repeated that it was the devil that helped him to plan the shooting. The prosecution struck the idea that Lott was mentally unstable and angry over his inability to find a romantic partner. In one of the weirder aspects of the trial, Lott's mother and stepfather sued the city of Wichita Falls, Texas, in order to retrieve the murder weapon. According to them, the twenty-two rifle that Lott had used in the murder had been stolen from their apartment. Lott was first at first found mentally unfit to stand trial and was sent to the maximum security unit of Texas Mental Hospital. Then, in September 2018, a Fort Worth jury found Lott guilty of the murder of Lauren Lavdazanko. Plus, they found him guilty of aggravated assault and the shooting of Michaela Smith. Lott, the man who claimed to have talked with the devil, was sentenced to life in prison. Number 9. The Attack on Peter Cherm According to his grieving family, 65-year-old Peter Cherm was a beloved father and grandfather. 17-year-old Tommy Smith did not care about any of this. The only thing he cared about on February 24, 2015, was getting the keys to Cherm's Range Rover. When Cherm stepped in to stop the young punk from stealing his vehicle, Smith, who had already been convicted of a staggering 57 offenses, 
pulled out a knife and stabbed Sherm in the head, back, neck, chest, and arms. The stabbing attack was so frenzied that Smith actually snapped the 8-inch knife in two. Smith went on trial for attempted murder in March 2016. Smith told the Wolverhampton Crown Court that he was not responsible for his actions and he had been possessed by a demon on that terrible day. The court more than likely did not buy the possession story, but they did take into account that Smith had been previously diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. As such, he was cleared of the charge of attempted murder. He was, however, convicted of grievous bodily harm and burglary. Cherm was in the courtroom for Smith's sentencing, despite being blind in one eye and having survived a serious stroke as a result of Smith's onslaught. Rather than a jail cell, Smith was sent to a secure mental hospital for an indefinite period of time. The failed exorcism of Michael Taylor is our number eight. Believe it or not, in our secular age, exorcisms are on the rise. Last year, it was reported that the Roman Catholic Church in the United States was seeing a rise in the overall number of exorcisms throughout the country. And unfortunately, there is a shortage of exorcists. And in a, of Indianapolis alone received 1,700 exorcism requests between January and December of 2019. But back in 1974, one year before the release of the classic film, The Exorcist, an exorcism was carried out in the sleepy town of Ossat, West Yorkshire, England. The possessed subject was one Michael Taylor, a 31-year-old married father of five children. Most who knew Taylor described him as a cheery fellow, although he was prone to fits of depression. Now and then, for the most part of these black moods, were the result of back injury and made it hard for Taylor to maintain steady employment. Things began to change in the Taylor household when they joined the Christian Fellowship Group, a local church organization the previously irreligious Michael began regularly attending church services. One of the reasons for his dramatic change was 21-year-old Marie Robinson, the group's preacher. Robinson convinced her congregation that the power of God could drive out their demons. Outside of these meetings, some in Osset began to claim that Robinson and Taylor were carrying out an affair. The more Taylor became involved with Robinson, the more his attitude began to change. The once chipper man became easily irritated and foul-tempered. Things came to a head when Taylor and Robinson were found naked together. Taylor blamed this on an evil presence within himself, and local Anglican vicar was called to perform an exorcism. During an all-night ceremony in October of 1974, the vicar, other ministers, apparently drove out 40 demons, including the demons of bestiality, incest, lewdness, and blasphemy. However, the exhausted clergyman decided to go home, even though they still believed that three demons, murder, violence, and insanity, were still in Taylor. A few hours later, Taylor was found covered in blood, which he claimed belonged to Satan himself. The blood, in fact belonged to his wife, Christine, those mutilated, whose mutilated body was later discovered in the Taylor home. Taylor was ultimately found not guilty 
by reason of insanity. Number seven, the murder of Angie Escobar. On September 10th, 2015, a body was discovered inside of an abandoned car in the Whitestone section of Queens, New York. The body belonged to 28-year-old Angie Escobar, who had died after being stabbed some 80 times. The medical examiner in the case found that Angie had been killed four days prior to her discovery. Before long, the New York Police Department zeroed in on a suspect, 31-year-old Luis Zambrano of Flushing, Queens. Zambrano was arrested on September 18th after fleeing to Virginia. Zambrano ultimately confessed to police that he had stabbed Escobar with a pair of scissors after the single mother admitted that she wanted to break off their relationship. In pleading guilty, Zambrano claimed that he had been possessed by a demon at the time of the murder. Zambrano also blamed trust issues for his actions. Number six, mommy is a killer. Elizabeta Plaskowatske of Naperville, Illinois, began hearing voices sometime before October 30th, 2012. These voices told Elizabeta that her child and one of her friends were possessed and needed to die in order to find salvation. Elizabeta gave in to these voices, and on October 30th, she killed seven-year-old Justin Plaskowatske and five-year-old Olivia Dwaraskowski, Justin was Elizabeth's son, while Olivia was spending the night in the Plasky Awaska family home. Number five, a frenzy of extreme violence. In Lutton, England, it's a rough place. Earlier in 2018, crime studies in the UK found that the city was one of the highest burglary rates in all of England and Wales. Lutton is also notorious as a popular home for some of the UK's most fearsome jihadists. As recently as July 2019, a 28-year-old man and a 25-year-old woman were arrested in the city and accused of carrying documents implicating them in a forthcoming terror attack. Lutton was the scene of a very different type of horror on May 26, 2015. That night, 32-year-old Jason Nelson, originally from Granada, went to the home of 20-year-old drug dealer Jordan McGuire. The goal was to buy weed. However, Nelson didn't buy anything that night. Instead, he stabbed McGuire several times before fleeing into the night. McGuire managed to cling to life long enough to die in the street like a dog. After the police apprehended the suspect, he claimed that demons were surrounding the men that he murdered and that the demons told him in order to free himself, he had to kill McGuire. Please hold for a word from our sponsor. Now playing one of the biggest podcasts of the week on the free iHeartRadio app. Now number one for podcasting. The Devil on Trial. Brookline, Connecticut is the type of town where murder never happens. In fact, when 40-year-old Alan Bono was murdered on February 16, 1981, it was Brookline's first homicide since the town had been founded 193 years earlier. The guilty party had stabbed Bono more than 20 times with a common pocket knife. 
The killer was 19-year-old Arne Cheyenne Johnson. Went to trial, proclaiming a most unusual defense, not guilty by reason of demonic possession. The Devil App. In February 2019, police in Kalamazoo, Michigan, released the 2016 interrogation tapes of spree killer Jason Dalton. Dalton, 48, carried out one of the most inexplicable mass shootings in recent memory. On February 20, 2016, Dalton, an Uber driver, shot and killed 62-year-old Mary Lou Nye and her sister-in-law, 60-year-old Joe Nye. 74-year-old Dorothy Judy Brown, 68-year-old Barbara Hawthorne, and 53-year-old Richard Smith, and his 17-year-old son Tyler. In between some of these drive-by shootings, Dalton continued to pick up passengers and drop them off at their destinations. 14-year-old Abigail Kampf and 28-year-old Tina Carruthers were also shot during Dalton's rampage, but they managed to survive. During his interrogation, Dalton told detectives that Uber Mobile app began changing his personality. I know you guys are going to have a hard time believing this, but it literally took over my mind and body, Dalton told investigators. Cannibal Killers, number two. It is not easy to horrify the Russian public, but that is what happened in August 2008 in a forest outside of the city of Yarskolov. Four mutilated corpses were found. The bodies had been desecrated beyond belief. Plus, homicide investigators also learned that the victims, all of whom were teenage boys, had been robbed either before or after death. Still, despite this fact, the sheer brutality of the crime led investigators to believe that robbery was not the motive. Following a trial which was closed to the public due to the gruesome nature of the crime, 21-year-old Aga Balak was sentenced to 20 years in prison on charges of robbery, murder, and corpse desecration. The other five members of the robbery group, four boys and one girl, were given sentences that ranged from 8 to 10 years. They did these crimes in order to please Lucifer, they claimed. And number one, the strange case of serial killer Sean Sellers. At the tender age of 16, Sean Sellers was practicing Satanism. He regularly drank his own blood. According to Sellers himself, his descent into darkness began at around age seven. However, given his rough upbringing, one could say that Sellers was damned from the beginning. All of Sean's rage and humiliation exploded on March 5th of 1986. Wearing only a pair of black underwear, Sean crept into his parents' bedroom and shot both in the face. Sean would later state that he was angry at his mother because she disapproved of his girlfriend and the fact that he had dropped out of high school. Prior to the murders, Sean had carried out occult practice rituals. Unparalleled insider access. Get it all. Introducing the Sirius XM Platinum VIP plan. Our newest, most exclusive plan. Listen in two cars, plus stream anywhere with two app logins. Access a massive, exclusive library of live concert video and audio recordings through nugs.net. 
have opportunities to experience live and virtual SiriusXM events, including VIP-only exclusives. Get all your questions answered by a dedicated VIP customer care team. Plus, get all the entertainment we've got. It's all included with your Platinum VIP subscription. Be a VIP. Call 844-711-8800 to learn more. Offer detail supply. One login for activated vehicle. Not available in Canada. Along Devil's Road in Jasper, Indiana, a bus full of children died in the 1960s along that road when the bus driver decided to commit suicide by parking the bus on some train tracks. To this day, it's been said that if you park your own car on those same tracks and put it in neutral, when you do, the children's spirits will push you off the tracks to save your life. It's kind of sweet in a spooky way. There have been hundreds and hundreds of cases reported just like what I read to you, where people have encountered along Devil's Road in Jasper, Indiana, just this type of phenomena. They will sit, turn off the lights, and just wait for something to happen. And there have even been instances where people have reported seeing little tiny handprints on the backs of their vehicle where more than 10 children, or the hands the size of children, had pushed the vehicle over the train tracks as a way to avoid that person meeting the same fate that they did at the hands of their bus driver. Kind of a fun story. I love things like this. I mean, unfortunately, a large group of children died as a result of the frail temperament of one bad man. But in the afterlife, they appear to be trying to help the living. There was an investigation at a property that I took place in several years ago, um, assisting with another paranormal research group that was familiar with the area. And they wanted to get my take on the situation and my expert opinion. Uh, apparently, this property was being haunted and um, the people that owned the property were being tortured spiritually by a half-man, half-dog-head creature. It looked like an animal, but it had a human torso, uh, hind legs, but the front arms of this beast were the arms of like a giant dog and it would contort it would twist itself around it would climb up the wall and up and down the stairs backwards with its head twisted around to always stay focused on you and it was the head of a demented looking dog uh, it was definitely a non-human spirit that took the form of half man half animal and stories like this are common in Native American mythology, Native American religion, uh, stories of shape-shifting animal-humanoid creatures, uh, usually attributed to demonic manifestation. And this was not a kind spirit. It was not a pure spirit. It was a dark, evil, tainted, angry spirit that took a mutated form. And that was something you could definitely attribute to an animal spirit and that was a first person account first uh, hand account of something i myself witnessed uh, seeing this thing appear in shadows and in flashes upon entry it, it was unsettling it was probably one of the most spiritually 
confined situations I had ever put myself in. It was one that I dare not repeat. Uh, on a lighter note, an encounter that me and my entire family had with uh, spirit animal, the long lost soul of a of a pet. Not a long lost soul. The soul was in dog heaven, but the pet was long lost. Uh, we still thought of her often. She died several months before Christmas. But when we were looking back at family photos, and this was when you would use instant cameras to take photographs, you know, before digital photography and 6 to 12 megapixel and however many terabytes an image requires. Uh, things were very different 15, 16 years ago, almost 20 years ago, when our beloved pet lady passed away. And pictures that were taken on Christmas morning clearly show a an orb of some sort in the form of a dog on the couch sitting next to my wife's at the time 90 year old grandmother and my mother-in-law was sitting on the floor holding a new gift that my nephew Stephen had received it was a snowsuit and as she was holding it up above him to show in the image that this is what he had received after he opened the gift there was a strange light apparition that appeared over both my nephew and mother-in-law that looked almost like the description of what a gown from an angel would look like. So not only did we capture the spirit of our long-lost pet and the dog's very soul, but also possibly an angel watching over. Maybe the angel's what brought Lady to us for that Christmas. Or what appeared above my mother-in-law could just have been an issue with development and too much light coming in. Anywho, that was a fun story I wanted to share with you. And now please hold for a word from our sponsor. King Solomon purportedly wrote one of the earliest works in Western culture where types of demons are classified by domain. The Testament of Solomon, in this piece, King Solomon describes his interactions with Beelzebub and other demons who he enslaves to help build his temple. The book also contains numerous rituals and sigils that are still used today to conjure demons. Demons listed by Seleucus in the 11th century, Michael Seleuz attempted to classify types of demons by domain. The type of demons that Seleuz divided demons into were Imperial, which uh, fiery, Aerial, subterranean, Lucifugius, which is uh, heliophobic, uh, aqueous, and terrestrial. Demons listed by the seven deadly sins. Deadly sin number one, pride, the lantern of light, an anomalous English Lillard tract often attributed to Wycliffe, was also known, unknown at that time, a work that is now believed to be written by Wycliffe himself. The book categorized types of demons based upon the seven deadly sins. These types of demons that Wycliffe used would be later found in the books by John Taylor, the water poet. St. Catherine of Siena attacked by demons, deadly sin number one. Deadly sin one is demon Lucifer. Deadly sin number two is envy, Beelzebub. Number three, wrath, Satan. Number four of the deadly sins, sloth, 
which is Abaddon. Deadly sin number five, greed, which is Mammon. Number six, the deadly sin and the demon for gluttony is Belphegar. Number seven, the deadly sin of lust is Asmodeus. Spina's list of demons inspired by different legends and stories of his time, Alsfonios de Spina, in 1467, classified demons by incubi and succubi, demons that have sex with the living, demons of fate, otherwise known as the angel of death, wandering groups or armies of demons, otherwise known as legion, familiars, which are animal spirit guides for witches and warlocks who are considered personal demons. Druids. In German folklore, it is an evil spirit that causes nightmares. Cambions and other demons that are born from the union of a demon with a human being, which is also Nephilim. Mischievous demons, which are imps, worker demons. I've encountered many of those upon investigations. Demons that attack clergy. The exorcist is a prime example of that. Demons that entice people into the occult and witchcraft. Bensfield's types of demons. In The Prince of Hell by Peter Bensfield in 1589, different types of demons again are classified by the seven deadly sins. The only exception is that the names of the demons are slightly different than Lantern of Light. Number one, Lucifer is pride. Mammon is once again greed. Asmodeus is lust. Leviathan is envy. Beelzebub is gluttony. Satan is wrath. And Belphegor is sloth again. The King James Bible's version of demons. Several years prior to the King James Bible, in 1591, King James wrote, Demon Ologerg. Demon Ologerg separates demons into four types based on what that devil causes torture on the living and the dead. Spectra, in the modern world, referred to a haunting, spectra, or spirits of the dead that haunt places or objects. Obsession, ghosts or spirits that haunt people. Possession, demon or spirits that take over the actual body and soul of the living, and that only happens to the willing. Fairies, spirits or demons that give advice to the living. They commonly live within heavily wooded areas and places of enchantment like Ireland and Scotland. Types of demons according to Michaelis, types of demons that Sebastian Michaelis has in his own book, The Admirable History, were given to him by the demon Berith. When he was exercising a nun, his classification system is based upon the sin the devil tempts the living to commit. First hierarchy, princes of fallen angels, Beelzebub, the demon that tempts men with pride, is opposed by St. Francis of Assisi. Leviathan, the demon attempts people to give into heresy and is opposed by St. Peter. Asmodeus, the demon that tempts men into wantonness, is opposed by St. John the Baptist. Berith, the demon who tempts men to commit murder, is opposed by St. Barnabas. Astaroth, the demon tempts men to be lazy, opposed by St. Bartholomew. Verine, the demon tempts men with impatience, and he is opposed by St. Dominique. Grizil, the demon tempts men with impurity, opposed by St. Bernard. Son Elan, 
the demon tempts men to hate, and he is opposed by St. Stephen. The second hierarchy, of course, demons of powers, dominions, and virtues. Cariou, the demon of powers, and is opposed by St. Vincent and Vincent Ferrer. Carnival, this demon tempts men to obscenity and shamelessness, and he is opposed by John the Evangelist. Oilet, the demon that tempts men to vow of poverty, is opposed by St. Martin. Rosier, a demon of dominions, this demon, he tempts men against sexual purity. He is opposed by St. Basil. Belias, a demon of virtues, this demon, he tempts men with arrogance and women to be vain, raise their children as want as wantons, and St. Francis de Paul opposes gossip during Mass. And there's a third hierarchy, and it's pretty much the same as the first and second hierarchy. Not a lot changes between those three variations. Now, the nine types of demons, according to Francis Barrett, in Francis Barrett's books, The Magus, uh, written in 1801, offered this, his classification for types of demons. Beelzebub, the keeper of false gods, demons of false idols and prophets. Pythias, spirit of lying, the demon of liars. This must be the demon that possesses Donald Trump. Belial, vessel of iniquity, demons of evil things. Asmodeus is the demon of wickedness. Satan is the imitator of miracles, the demon of witchcraft. He's the author of confusion, of course. Miriam, he has aerial powers and also is the demon of pestilence. Abaddon Furies is the demon of discord. Asteroth Calminators is the demon of inquisitors and fraudulent accusers. And Memon Malageni is the demon of tempters and ensnarers. And that is a list that I felt needed to be shared. It's kind of like a walk down the book of Genesis lesson for you today. This is exactly why they call me preacher when I'm at the Mothman Festival and various other conventions and festivals uh, doing lectures and speaking because I tie in a lot of spirituality and historical knowledge, uh, both world history and biblical history, into my teachings and what I write about and talk about. Thanks for hanging out with me this long. And now, a word from our sponsor. Fantastic. Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction, are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the Internet. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. That's terrific. 
most bizarre thing I've ever encountered. One uh, would be uh, when I was a guest speaker at the Mothman Festival in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. I told you, Randy. Uh, several years ago. I've, I've been a regular there, but I've taken some time off from it so I don't bore people. So this woman approaches me, and she is, seems to be distraught, and she's like, she really needed to talk to me, but not around other people. So she pulls me off to the side, and she says to me, I don't know how to tell you this, but... I know I've been abducted over and over again since the age of nine. I'm like, okay, go ahead. I, I'm open ears. I hear stories like this all the time. And she said, no, you don't understand. They've abducted me within the last year and impregnated me. I said, really? And she says, yes. And I was carrying the child almost a full term. And then the light took me again. And when I came to, I was in the hospital. And they say I was never pregnant to begin with. But I have ultrasounds showing that I had a child in my stomach. I, I said, oh, okay, did you, you know, did some cult maybe take your baby or something? Or did a dingo get your baby? And she's, I didn't really say that. That would be rude. So she she went on to, to say that she keeps having visions of a child that she um, will never see or never have because it was taken from her by the higher beings. And that she encountered a child that she knew was hers, but it was aged seven years, but she lost it about a year ago. And I'm like, okay, so it aged rapidly, she said, because it's an alien-human hybrid. And she knows it's her child because it spoke to her telepathically. Oh, and no. said, Mommy, I'm here, I'm okay. Um, they need me. They need me. I have a higher calling. And I, I'm start, I'm sitting, I have to sit down at this point. I'm like, okay, because that was a lot to unload on a guy that That's writes ghost books and talks yeah. about Bigfoot and You're like, this is a great man. story. Are you yeah. like, yes. I was thinking, is it I hard to capitalize on Is this? it hard? Like, do you have to, like, resist getting too caught up in the beginning? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, you can end up like Alex Jones. You mentioned sure. him earlier. Yeah. And create your own crazy cult of conspiracies mm -hmm. and... Mm -hmm. Then the government has you on a watch list, which isn't fun. I've had my phones tapped, but that's a whole other story. And that whole experience, uh, on top of that, then I, there was another time at the Mid-Ohio Paranormal Convention in Dayton where these people approached me and said that men in black were following them. Uh, men in black had told them not to talk to me <laughs> and that they feel they have to share these images with me before the men in black take them because they've broken into their house and ransacked their house looking for these images. And it was just random images of really weird black lines and posts that just appear out of nowhere within a five-second shot. They're not there. And then within a five-second shot, they are there. So, I mean, these were just typical Polaroids and snapshots. And I'm thinking, well, you know, that could have been a Sharpie marker. You just gave me a quick glimpse of the image. Let me analyze the, the actual film. Let me look into this. Let me know more about the land where these pictures were taken. They were giving me minimal information. So there's a lot of kooks out there like that, right. too. Well, and then mental health. So, yeah, you're like, mental health plus, yeah. yeah. But that yeah. woman really shook me to the core when she shared that information. So what, what, what came of, of that? She had been following me for a while, and, and this was during the days of the merge between MySpace losing its popularity and Facebook becoming a, a gotcha. big thing in like mm -hmm. 2010, 2011 when MySpace died. And she had been following me heavily on uh, Facebook, which is one of the reasons I don't have my own Facebook anymore. Um, I have fan pages, but I don't have anything more than just that about myself on Facebook. Why? Because you are having people... Find you and yeah. come up to you with problems? Uh, yeah, and uh, somehow getting my phone number because there was a time when Facebook would take the information you put in uh, that's supposed to be 
secure, and they right. would have on their phone number, and then I would be getting calls and texts. Right. and All hours of the night? Yeah. <gasps> I just heard something. <laughs> I need you to come over. <laughs> Deep wow. into my sock drawer. Yeah, I would get that a lot. Now, what is the, so? what would you say is like the the most definitive evidence that you've ever been a part of? Uh, most... Like where, where you made you a believer 110%. It started with me at a very early age. Uh, what pushed me over the edge, I had always been aware of things, seen things, heard things, and I was told uh, by people close to me just to ignore it. Um, now you or, said like, like your mother or like your... your... Yeah, and uh, people at church. And uh, so they didn't... Add, so your mother or, or your parents or whoever this is uh, didn't ever have any sort of beliefs like you have? Like where? Oh, they do. They do. Uh, and they would choose to ignore it as well. And not feed it, not give it attention. But I went the exact opposite out of rebellion, I guess. You're like, give it to me. <laughs> yeah, Ghostbusters more. in our era didn't help either, I'm sure. Ghostbusters did not help. I mean, it, it's a great <laughs> film, but it did not help to um, push that fire down, I guess. So what I kept encountering was a loved one that had died and died under mysterious circumstances. We were told just from old age, but it was something more depression-related. Okay. And I kept seeing them around the time of the anniversary of their death, uh, not in a peaceful manner, but in a, in a manner of anguish and despair reaching out to me. It was freaking me out as a five-year-old, as a six-year-old, seven-year-old. This went on until I was about 11 or 12. Around the same week that they died, I would keep seeing them in and around the property that belonged to them. And would they come up to you specifically because they knew that you could you would acknowledge them? Yeah. Whoa. They wouldn't speak. It's almost as if they couldn't speak. But I got a sense of despair and, and want and longing from them. Some They needed help for something. So at the age of 12, it just dawned on me because it works for me in my area. And those around me believe and acknowledge Jesus as a Savior. So it worked for us, mm-hmm. per se, religion-wise. And I prayed to God, take them wherever they need to go. They need you. They need to pass over. They need redemption, something. Save this soul. And the sighting stopped. I never saw this person again anymore in that state of being after that prayer was said. And it just, it's almost like a light went off that I'm supposed to do that. Uh, This is what I need to do. And it just only became... I guess it's um, you're like a walking Ouija board, like a spiritual I, gift worry. almost. Yeah, it's yeah, interesting. Um, Satan's little helpers, crimes committed in the name of the devil. Picture a satanic ritual. There will be candles. There will be symbols, possibly drawn in blood, and there might be some kind of sacrifice involved, goat or otherwise. It's an idea that's formed the basis for enough horror films. Then there are the times you see it play out in real life. If you look back over the crimes in the last century, some of the worst examples, including brutal murders and child abuse, will have Satan's name attached to them. And that's without having to go back to the Enlightenment era. The devil gave blame for a lot. It's an easy explanation for committing unspeakable acts. Satan made them do it. And in some of the most famous cases of satanic worship, it's simply not true. Take the West Memphis Three. Teenagers Damian Eccles, Jesse Miskelly Jr., and Jason Baldwin were arrested for the murder of three eight-year-old boys, Steve Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore. This was in 1993. The children were stripped, hogtied, and killed. Byers had been mutilated. 
It was a shocking crime that is still picked over today, and the motive was said to be Satanism, a ritualistic killing. But the only links between the teenagers and Satan appeared to be Eccles' history of mental illness and the teenagers' shared love of metal that went against the crucial influence of their Bible Belt town. The trial was reminiscent of the moralistic outrage that took over the 1980s in America with this whole satanic panic. Much of it was focused around McMartin's preschool case in 1983 when allegations of sexual abuse were made. A mother at the school made the initial charges of abuse after her son had problems with his bowel movements. The charges then escalated to accusations of flushing children down the toilet to secret rooms and reports of flying witches. The charges were only dropped in 1990 after a trial that had been going on since 1987 found no evidence of abuse or satanic ritual. It was the longest-running case in American history. But it's not all hype. There are cases of horrific abuse and murder that really are linked to Satanism. One of the world's most infamous serial killers, Richard Ramirez, was a Satanist and partly responsible for hysteria in the 1980s. From 84 to 85, he would break into people's homes in the middle of the night. Once inside, he carried out brutal attacks that often involved rape and sodomy before murdering his victims by stabbing, beating, or shooting them. Ramirez was a Satanist and made some of his victims swear on Satan or swear they loved Satan during the attacks. At 17, as I mentioned before, the name Sean Sellers became the youngest person to be given the death penalty after it was reinstated in the 1970s. His crimes were murdering a shop clerk who refused to sell him beer, and later his parents before the murders, Sellers had immersed himself in Satanism, signaling his devotion by carrying a vial of fresh blood around his neck, which he would drink from, naturally. On the night of his parents' murder, Sellers had been performing his rituals. He later said he fell asleep and woke up to find his stepfather's gun in his own room. Sellers went into their bedroom and shot his stepfather then, and when she woke up, shot his mother in the face. Sellers' grandfather directed the police to him. Initially, he claimed to have no memory of the crimes, but later said he was two people, Sean and his demonic alter ego. Then there's the case of Michael Taylor, who in 1974 claimed to be possessed. Taylor lived in West Yorkshire with his wife. When she started behaving erratically, his vicer agreed to exorcise him. After hours of trying to expel the demonic spirits, Taylor was warned that a few demons still remained inside him. Quote, that was reason he then slaughtered his wife with his bare hands. He gouged out her eyes, pulled out her tongue, and almost tore her face off completely. He also strangled a dog. Taylor was sent to institutions for four years, but that's not where his story ends. In 2005, he was found guilty of indecently touching a teenage girl. Demonic possession, or rather mental illness, was also behind the murder of Gemma Finnegan by Daniel Johnson in 2013. Johnson, who was schizophrenic, met his partner Finnegan after he was released on probation from prison, having murdered a man in 1996. Finnegan had no idea 
Johnson believed she was possessed by a demon and strangled her, beat and stabbed her to death. He was found wandering around a school and Newcastle covered in blood. A sex cult that cropped up in Wales in 2011 was also linked to the occult, led by its own high priest, Colin Bately, who enrolled his wife and two other adults. The cult operated out of the group's cul-de-sac. If um, it sounds genteel, the group raped and assaulted children and teenagers, enlisting some into prostitution from that very place. The group... (sighs) practiced occult rituals and writings, but were not technically Satanists, following the teachings of English occultist Aleister Crowley. In fact, 148 crimes were reported to the Metropolitan Police between 2004 and 2014 that involved witchcraft or ritualistic killings. And it continues. Earlier in 2015, Two schoolgirls in America were arrested after they were found carrying weapons. The pair allegedly confessed to a plan that included drinking other children's blood and possibly eating their flesh. What could make two preteen girls plan something so awful? They said they wanted to be with Satan. Ghosts, aliens, UFOs, Bigfoot, parallel universes, angels and demons, time travel, cryptozoology, and so much more within the realm of the unexplained, the strange, and the out of this world. I'm your host, Neil Parks, award-winning author, screenwriter, researcher, and paranormal professional. Join me every week as I tackle hot-button topics within the paranormal realm. I'll share personal accounts, my research, and second-hand evidence. I will read excerpts and stories from my books and discuss my upcoming projects in the literary world. Documentaries, both on TV and the big screen, plus my independent film projects. Paranormally Speaking is both thought-provoking and entertaining. New episodes drop every Thursday. Tune in to Paranormally Speaking and prepare to be enlightened. death. This was Sarah's first real home with Rick. It wasn't an apartment or a house on loan from a family member. They started renting this dream home soon after their wedding. The modest and inviting White House was nestled on a small lot in the heart of the historical downtown district of Boston. It appeared to be the perfect opportunity to start their lives together. Rick and Sarah were newlyweds and were immediately drawn to this perfect little home. For months, the couple enjoyed furnishing and decorating their first real home. They loved living downtown. In the beginning, they thought it was just the noises of a really old house settling. Then strange things began to happen. The first night of the morning slipped around the edges of the white ruffled curtains as the young bride snuggled under the covers. Returning to sleep, she was suddenly startled by noises coming from the kitchen down below. The sounds of dishes clattering, water running, and cupboard doors opening and closing. She soon realized she wasn't home alone in the house. The sound of footsteps on the stairs soon followed the earlier noises. One by one, the footsteps were slow and steady. The stairs were creaking, and then the footsteps were heard in the hallway. The 
footsteps stopped short of her closed bedroom door. Rick? She whispered. She was white-knuckling her pillow, not knowing who or what was near her door. Was it an intruder lingering outside her bedroom? Could this be more of the ongoing issues that they have experienced? It went on quite a while before they accepted the fact that there was a restless spirit refusing to let go. When her husband left for work, she would always climb back under the covers, resting before her shift at the hospital later in the day. As she was fading in and out of sleeping and waking up, Sarah would hear movements and sounds downstairs. Sarah became concerned. It sounded like someone doing dishes, only the dishes were already clean and in the cupboard. This time felt very different from the early encounters with the phantom noises and movements. This was the first time the footsteps were heard in the hall and near the door. Rick, she whispered once more, only a bit louder this time. There was no response. She started to stiffen and reach for the baseball bat to the right of their headboard. Sarah walked softly toward the door with the bat in her hand. She was ready for a fight if she had to defend herself. The house was in a safe and upscale neighborhood, but this new noise made her nervous. She carefully placed her hand on the doorknob and jerked open the door. Sarah leapt into the hall, violently swinging the ball bat in every direction she could swing it. There was nothing near her door or in the hall that she could see. Without a second thought, Sarah shouted aloud for whomever or whatever could hear. This isn't funny. Cut the crap out already. I'm trying to sleep. Sarah wasn't really expecting a response to her surprise, though. The laughter of a child could be heard coming from the other end of the hall. Sarah was facing the direction of where the laughter came from. There was nothing physically there, but the laughter was still present. Sarah lowered the bat and stepped back into her room. She shut and locked the door. She wasn't expecting a response, especially one of that magnitude. Sarah was completely creeped out by the encounter. Dishes clattering, cabinet doors opening and closing, footsteps and floors creaking was one thing, but phantom laughter was an entirely different level. Sarah went ahead and got ready early for her shift. She told herself that she could go to the staff rooms at the hospital and catch up on her sleep. She was too spooked at this point to stay home and sleep. Sarah was quick about getting herself ready. She focused only on the task at hand, and that was to get ready and get out. After getting dressed, Sarah grabbed her phone and purse. She made a mad dash for the front door and headed outside. Her nerves were unsettled as she turned to lock the door. She called Rick on the way to work. He didn't answer, and the call went to his voicemail. Damn it, Rick, pick up! Sarah shouted into the phone. She threw her phone in anger and bounced it on the floor. Rick was busy and always kept his phone on vibrate while at work. Sarah was hoping that being at work would keep her mind off of what was happening at home. A few hours would pass before Rick would make it home. His routine was simple. He would pull up to the sidewalk, fumble with his keys, let himself in, and toss his keys on the marble foyer table. Rick was so exhausted that he would just go and find a place to lie down for a while. 
He walked into the living room and dropped into the recliner. As he kicked back to activate the footrest, he fell fast asleep. A few hours went by, and the house was now shrouded in darkness. The sun had set and night had fallen. Rick had slept like the dead. Something familiar started to wake him up from his nap. Soft kisses were being applied to his neck, and the feeling of Sarah crawling onto his lap and straddling him in the recliner was a welcome surprise. You're home early. Did you take some personal time and run home to play around? Keep doing what you're doing, Sarah, Rick said as she continued to kiss his neck and rub his chest. Rick was more than awake from his nap at this point. He started to return the kisses and run his finger through her hair. Sarah's hair felt different. It was always smooth and thick. Now it felt dry with tight curls. Wow, babe, did you hit the salon on the way home? What did you do differently? Rick said as he reached to turn on the floor lamp to get a better look. Upon turning on the light, Rick was surprised to see that it wasn't Sarah who was on top of him. The girl who had been doing these things to him was a young blonde girl with deep blue eyes and a painted on smile. She was wearing a flowing gown that wasn't common for this time period, and she smelled like roses and powder. What the hell? Who are you? How did you get in here? Rick shouted. As he pushed her off of him and rolled out of his chair, he stood up expecting that this girl was some pillhead or a transient looking for some stuff to steal. Rick reached for the fire poker next to his chair, but the girl simply vanished before his eyes. What the? Rick said to himself. The sounds of footsteps running up the stairs could be heard. A door slammed and the sound of a girl crying soon <laughs> followed. Rick was at a total loss for words as to what his next move should be. The ringing of his cell phone broke his concentration. With his hand shaking, he reached for the phone. Hello? H Hello? Rick said in a stammering manner. He didn't even bother to check the caller ID on his phone. Rick just reached for it and picked it up. Sarah was on the other end of the phone. Rick, you sound weird. Are you okay? Sarah asked. Me? A am I okay? You're not going to believe what just happened here, Rick replied. He went on from there to tell her everything that had just occurred. Rick held nothing back. Rick, you're not going to believe what happened to me, Sarah responded. Rick listened with open ears to her experience from earlier in the day as well. Sarah's shift would be ending in a couple of hours. They both decided to meet at their new favorite coffee house that was down the street. There, they would discuss face-to-face -face what their next move was going to be. After ending the phone call, Rick slipped his shoes back onto his feet and grabbed his keys. He had no intentions of sitting alone in that house any longer than he had to. The sound of water running could be heard coming from upstairs. Rick's focus shifted from the front door to the upstairs at that point. What's that? Rick said aloud. He walked slowly to the bottom of the staircase. Hello? Rick called out, hoping for a reply. Heavy sobbing could be heard coming from the upstairs. Rick thought to himself, this is nuts. Who the hell is that? He slowly started to climb the stairs, one foot in front of the other. Rick's heart began beating faster with every step he took. The closer he got to the top of the stairs, the louder the crying got, and the more <laughs> the water was running. Who's up there? Show yourself, Rick shouted. 
he was at the top of the stairs before he noticed that water was all over the floor in the front of the bathroom. Without a second thought, Rick walked down the hall towards the bathroom. The door was cracked and he pushed it the rest of the way open. Upon peering into the bathroom, Rick was dumbstruck by what he saw. Lying face down in the bathtub was a woman in what looked like a wedding gown. Water was overflowing and saturating the runner of the hallway. Rick ran into the bathroom in an attempt to help this mystery woman who was in the tub. He tried to stop short of the clawfoot tub, but the floor was too wet and he slipped. Rick's head made contact with the edge of the tub. His feet bounced off and threw him back to the floor with extreme force. Rick's head smacked hard on the tile floor. He had the wind knocked out of him and didn't feel as if he could get back up. The room started spinning, and he could feel himself fading in and out of consciousness. The woman who he saw lying face down in the water-filled tub was now standing over him. It was the same blonde girl who he had encountered downstairs. His head started to pound. The mystery woman knelt down, smiled compassionately at him, and grabbed his hand to hold. Rick placed his other hand at the base of his head and brought his hand back to his face. My hand is covered in blood. On my head, Rick thought to himself before he passed out. He awoke what felt like only moments later. He found himself walking along the street. He had no idea where he was and how he had ended up there. How did I end up here? Where am I? Rick said aloud. It was now daytime, and the first person on his mind was Sarah. He searched feverishly for his phone, but it wasn't on him. He approached a woman walking near him. Excuse me, miss, where am I right now? Do you know the time? Rick asked as he approached her. The woman let out a scream and ran away from him. Rick was surprised and just as scared as she was. Rick kept walking as he could only think about Sarah. Everyone he approached seemed to be scared of him and would run away. This confused Rick greatly. He finally decided to hail a taxi and give the driver his address. The taxi driver took one look at him and sped away. Frustrated, Rick found a man using a phone. He ran over to him and begged him to use it. The man threw his phone at Rick and ran away. What the hell is wrong with you people? I need help. Why will no one help? Rick cried aloud. Rick noticed that the man he approached threw his cell phone at him. He ran over and picked it up in order to call Sarah. Rick quickly dialed her number and waited. A strange man answered her phone. Rick shouted into the phone, Sarah, Sarah, who the hell is this? I need to speak with Sarah. Where is my wife? The voice responded, Sir, I think you have the wrong number. Who are you trying to reach? Rick fired back. Who am I trying to reach? Who the hell is this? I'm calling my wife's number, Sarah Sullivan. This is Rick, her husband. There was a long pause on the other end of the phone, followed by the stranger clearing his throat. He responded, Sir, I'm really sorry. I'm certain that you have the wrong number. Uh, Mrs. Sullivan is making arrangements for her husband's funeral. He's going to be buried in a couple of days. He died at their home last night. Horrified by this news, Rick dropped the phone and fell back against the store window. He turned and looked at his reflection in the glass and saw blood all over the top of his head and a huge bruise on his forehead and the side of his face was swollen and red. Standing next to him was the same mystery woman from his house. 
she was the same woman who he had an encounter with in the recliner and was holding his hand as he was lying on the floor. She said to Rick, it's going to be fine, my love. You will be with me forever now. Death has brought us together. Rick let out a guttural scream. No! As I mentioned before the commercial break, a fellow author and friend of mine, James Willis, was a co-author on Weird Ohio, which was, uh, it's a book that, of course, you can get anywhere in the state. Uh, and every state has its own weird book. There's Weird Pennsylvania, Weird New England, Weird New Hampshire, Weird Vermont, Weird New York. I make a point to grab a copy of every weird whatever state I'm in book whenever I'm there. However, I had difficulty finding one for Texas when I was there last weekend. Uh, I was in Dallas for a business trip uh, for my day job, a company that I co-own with a business partner of mine. We had a business trip in Dallas, which was a big annual conference. That was a lot of fun, but a little too country for my speed. I'm a hard rocker through and through. But one of the things that James Willis has discussed with me and we've kicked around the idea of collaborating on is a full-on book and possible documentary on Helltown, Ohio, which actually lives up to its name. Now, for starters, an abandoned city in Ohio's Cuyahoga Valley that fuels local urban legends about a chemical spill and murderous Satanists. Welcome to Helltown. In the Cuyahoga Valley in Ohio, there is an eerily deserted place known as Helltown. Unlike the ghost towns of the West, this Midwestern area is particularly unique because it doesn't look all that old. Although some buildings bear the features of early America, the rest are distinctly 20th century. The clear, no trespassing signs posted throughout the town are certainly modern and official. There's not a soul to be found in this place, but there are still remnants of the lives the former residents left behind including an abandoned school bus. The town is surrounded by a dangerous road and many roads that seemingly lead to nowhere. But it is the church that seems to have inspired its ominous name. The white building in the center of Helltown is emblazoned with the upside-down cross. The locals all have their theories. Some say the church was a place of worship for the Satanists who populated Helltown some of whom say they still lurk around the closed-off roads, hoping to ensnare unwitting visitors. Others say the town was evacuated by the government after a toxic chemical spill that resulted in a bizarre mutations of the local residents and animals, with the most deadly being the Peninsula Python, a snake that grew to enormous size and still slithers near the abandoned town. Even the old school bus is the center of a dark legend. Supposedly the children in it were carried and were slaughtered by an insane killer or in some versions of the story by a group of Satanists. The superstitious claim that if you peer through the vehicle's windows, you can see either the ghosts of the killer or his victims still sitting inside. Helltown, Ohio 
is in fact an abandoned town formerly known as Boston, whose deserted buildings provide plenty of fodder for creepy photos, or at least they did until they were all torn down in 2016. While what really happened in the town's residence is quite disturbing in its own way, most of the urban legends have rather mundane explanations. The church does in fact bear upside-down crosses, but these are a fairly common feature of the Gothic revival style in which it was constructed. Ghost hunters may have actually gotten a terrifying glimpse of a man or children inside the old school bus. However, they were not the spirits of murder victims forever trapped in limbo, but rather a man and his family who temporarily lived there while their house was being renovated. There is still some local debate about whether the chemical spill actually happened, but the lack of hard proof regarding the Peninsula Python has not stopped locals from celebrating Python Day. Even Helltown's spooky name is a result of, rather than the source of all these urban legends, Helltown is actually just a nickname for part of Boston Township in Summit County, Ohio. The residents of the area were indeed forced to abandon their homes by the federal government, but not because of a chemical spill or supernatural cover-up, with national concerns about the deforestation in full swing, in 1974, President Gerald Ford approved legislation that allowed the National Park Services the power to expropriate land, theoretically to preserve forests. While the idea behind the bill may have been good intentions, it was bad news for residents living in areas designated by the National Park Service for new parks areas. The area that is now dubbed Helltown was earmarked for the new Cuyahoga Valley National Park, and the people living there had no choice but to sell their properties to the government under eminent domain. One disgruntled mover scrawled his own gloomy epithet on the wall. Now we know how the Indians felt. Please hold for an important message from one of my sponsors, and I'll be right back with more on Helltown. Ohio. I asked you, the audience, to share your stories with me, and you did not fail me. I'm about to share with you seven different stories shared with me that, out of all of them submitted, are by far the creepiest. Seven scary as hell 3 a.m. ghost stories that will make you afraid of the devil's hour even more. The clock strikes three, demons come free. It is an age-old concept, and there are firm believers that the devil's hour exists and is not a myth or a superstition. I, for one, if by any chance I wake up at 3 a.m., I'm a little curious as to why it happens, or around that time for that matter. And who wouldn't? It is creepy. The night is dark and full of terrors, after all. But we occasionally love a good horror story, don't we? Also... We love to get scared when we hear someone else's citation of a true incident. Here are a few 3 a.m. ghost stories that will make you afraid of the devil's hour even more. This one was submitted to me. The title is Figure Behind. Hi, I am Sumit from India. I had a weird experience a few nights ago. I woke up at 3.30 a.m., I was on my bed lying down. I saw a shadow or a figure behind the curtain of my room. That curtain was near my washroom door. 
I looked at it and I heard a sound like a growl. It made that sound when I was actually trying to get up to see what it was. But I was paralyzed and I was trying to shout at it, but I could not even open my mouth. All I could do was just make a humming sound. All of a sudden, it was normal again. I got up in full anger and searched for it. But I thought the growl must have been my dog. But he was asleep. Since that time, I'm a little nervous about that time. The next one that I'll share with you is titled The Lamp. A few years ago, one night around 3 a.m., my wife and I were sleeping, and I felt myself slowly waking up from a really deep sleep. My eyes started lifting up, and as soon as they focused on the lamp on my dresser, it slid off and shattered on the floor. My wife and I quickly sat up and looked at each other, horrified at the startling noise. We agreed we would clean it up in the morning and went back to sleep. The next morning when we woke up, the lamp was at the foot of the bed, about five feet from where it fell, completely intact and not broken at all. We are still trying to make sense of this. This one was also submitted to me. It's called Down the Stairs. The only one I have is when I was in fourth grade. When I was little, I would always sleep with my door open. I went through a phase where I would wake up between three and four every night and every single night, I would hear footsteps walking up my stairs, around my living room, through my dining room, across my kitchen, and down my hallway. They would always stop right before my doorway, then turn around and go back to the basement. But one night, they didn't stop. What I saw was a shadow of a little girl, really couldn't tell if it was a girl or a boy, walk right in front of the doorway, look at me for a few seconds, and then walked away. Back down the stairs. I slept with the door closed the next night. Staring is the next one. My story begins about a year ago when I was sleeping in one of the rooms in my parents' house. I suddenly awoke in the middle of the night at exactly 3 a.m. I stared at my alarm clock when it suddenly turned 3.01 a.m. For some reason, I was staring out the window towards my neighbor's backyard. All of a sudden, their outdoor light turned on for about a minute or so before automatically shutting off. This was no ordinary outdoor light. My neighbors had one of those sensory lights that automatically turned on when someone approached the door or got close to it, usually installed to keep robbers away. What was most interesting about this was that no one was seen going in or out of their house through that door. If there was, I would not have been able to see their shadow. But in this case, the lights turned on for no apparent reason. I did not think about the possibilities after I awoke and until after I started hearing noises about 3 a.m., which is the most spiritualistic time of the night. Just thought I would share that because it seemed to have a lot in common with uh, stories you were asking about. That's all. The next one is called Over the Phone. And this one, of course, uh, deals more with uh, phone calls late in the night. What if they were affected by a time when our minds 
are in the sleep state, combined with the thinnest veil between our world and the others. What a theory. A very interesting one at that. Every night at 3.37, for a period of a week, around the same time that my grandmother had died a year before, I kept getting calls on my phone at exactly 3.57 a.m. every morning. And it sounded like the piano music she used to play when she was still alive. The next one is titled, It Lurks. Ever since I was a child, I have had nightmares where someone drags me out of my bed. I wouldn't be able to talk or breathe. I know this is probably sleep paralysis. The thing is, I grew up Catholic and have always had a fear of the devil. I always wake up at 3 a.m. and pray or turn on my TV until it is 4. I used to joke that I had a demon following me to my friends because I always felt like someone was watching me. My dog used to bark at my closet in my childhood home. Last year, while visiting a friend, I made another joke about my demon haunting me. And right after I made that joke and walked away from the closet, I was standing in. A bag fell from the top right down onto where I was standing. The next day, my friend and I took a picture together, and beside me was a strange orb, like Flash, with a clearly visible and ominous face. It made both of us cry. When I moved to my new and current place, things seemed to subside, and I felt normal again. But now I am having sleep paralysis again, and waking up at three in the morning for fear of my life. As soon as I wake, I stare at one corner of my room because I feel like a presence is there. Even my fiancé woke up and said that she felt scared. He doesn't believe in the devil and said, it is all in my head. Last night I had another nightmare where I was trying to call out for help because I felt like something was going to drag me out of bed. I woke up and my fiancé turned and looked at me and growled. I choked him and screamed and he woke up very angry because he didn't know what the hell was going on. He used to make fun of me and pretend to be a demon and do this, so I thought he was messing around. But it was still very frightening. I know what his snores sound like, and I know what I saw. I can't tell anyone because no one believes me, and I fear for my life now more than ever. I am 12 weeks pregnant and so stressed out that I fear I will miscarry. I am going to see a priest and practice penance and talk to him about what I should do next. Do you think this is in my head? The next one is called Watching Over. I've been waking up at 3 a.m. and I couldn't be able to go back to sleep. I try forcing myself to sleep, but that doesn't work. Sometimes at 3 a.m. I would wake up and I couldn't move. Only my eyes would open. I wouldn't even be able to talk, and I would try talking in my head, wondering why I couldn't move or talk, having me think someone is taking control of me, and I'm not sometimes. I always feel like someone is watching me. When I was nine, I had someone follow me. I first started seeing her at my grandma's house, but I was so scared I just ran into the room closet and closed it. I looked at my phone, and it was 3.12 a.m. for me. Now, 
and it's been happening to me for two or three years already. I'm too scared to sleep, and I like to stay up all the time with my friends on Facebook.